right, well, good morning. My name is Nathan. I'm the Connections and College Pastor here at Hope Fellowship. I am so excited to be here speaking with you all today, uh, continuing our series in Romans. So if you will, turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, or flip on your devices, whatever you have. Uh, Pastor Mark has asked me to speak on this, and we've been in the series now for a little over a month. Pastor Mark and Pastor Matthew have done absolutely incredible jobs speaking on this, so I feel like I have a little bit to live up to with how well of a job they have done. So uh, today, though, there is a lot just in these 10 verses, so I really just want to jump in. I don't really want to have too much at the beginning besides us just reading this, um, because this passage is packed full with so many incredible uh, things. Today, we're going to be looking at God's righteousness and how experiencing that righteousness humbles our hearts and leads us to love God and love others more. It's a big text. So before we jump in, would you all please pray with me and for me as we get ready just to lean into this text together. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just pray over this time that we have together right now. We pray over every single one of our hearts and our minds and our souls that you would be working in it, showing us your presence here today. God, I, would, I pray that we continue to worship through this act of learning more about you, not just for the sake of knowledge, but so that we can have a practical and applicable understanding of scripture and take it into our lives for the next week, month, and years to come, God. We thank you. We love you. So let me pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you haven't turned to Romans 3 yet, turn there now and let's uh, read just the first little bit of Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, so already just these six verses here, we could spend probably a weekend conference talking about these six verses, but we don't have that kind of time. And I know you guys have things to do today. But so as I was reading through this and as I was, as I was preparing for this message, I was trying to think of what to even focus on in these six verses. Because here Paul talks so much about so many different theological themes, themes like the Old and New Testament connecting themes like the old Mosaic law being fulfilled now in Jesus, and now there is a new law. Themes uh, used in words like propitiation and justification, alluding to temple worship and sacrificing animals on the mercy seat. There is a lot in this text. But as I was preparing and I was reading this over and over again, I started to look and see that he mentions God's righteousness four times in just six verses. And whenever Paul repeats anything, it means it's important and we have to pay attention to it. And so I started to think, what if Paul here, in all these six verses, is talking so much about God's righteousness so that we can understand something? What if he's talking so much about God's righteousness so that we can understand our own unrighteousness? 
I mean, just look at some of these verses with me. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul here is alluding to the fact that once where we had to follow these strict rules and laws and we had to go through the Torah and follow the Torah and all those things in order to gain righteousness, now that righteousness is now manifested in someone else named Jesus and we no longer can do anything. John chapter 14, Jesus says to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What Jesus is saying here, and what Paul is reinforcing in these six verses, is that now there is a new way, and it is Jesus. If, if it's not faith in Jesus, it's not the way. So already just in the first verse, even though he's not explicitly stating that God is righteous and we are unrighteous, there are subtle hints that God is completely righteous. And because of that, we are in need of someone to intercede on our behalf. But just in case we missed it, Paul so expertly as he does throughout Romans and any of his other letters, he makes sure that we understand that God is righteous and and we are unrighteous by writing in verse 23 and verse 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. John Piper writes on these two verses that these two verses are the two most important verses in the entire Bible. Now, when Pastor Mark told me I was speaking on this text, I was like, maybe you should have covered this part of the Bible if these are the two most important verses in the entire Bible. But here we are. But as I was going through this and I was reading that article, I was thinking to myself, I don't really know if I want to put that kind of weight on just two verses in Scripture, right? All Scripture is God-inspired and applicable to us today. But I also don't want to diminish the importance of these two verses for you and for me. Because here in these two verses, Paul introduces the fundamental problem with mankind and the essential solution for all of humanity. He introduces the fate of us and introduces our eternal hope for salvation and righteousness. These two verses show just how unrighteous we are. And yet in the midst of our great unrighteousness also shows the righteousness of God. And so I want to pause and take a moment and expound to this because I think that over the years of hearing these two verses, for me personally, and over the years of hearing the gospel, which plainly those two verses are the gospel, over the years of hearing it, I think I've become almost numb at times to the gospel, almost numb to the realness and the gravity of my own sin. Why? Because it's like I'll hear a pastor start talking about this and I'll kind of think, all right, come on, move on, get to the good stuff. I've already heard this like a bajillion times. I don't need to hear it one more time, right? And I'm not saying that this should uh, always, you know, there should always be walls shaking and God should speak in a thunderous, booming voice whenever we hear the gospel, but it should still affect us every single time we read it, we hear it, or we experience it. I mean, this is the gospel, right? This is the reason why maybe some of us are here in the room today. This is why we've lived our life a certain way. This is important to us. This, these two verses are things that we should meditate on and make the center of our soul. So even if you've already heard a, a million times, and even if right now you're thinking, okay, Nathan, move on. I've already heard the gospel. Let's get to the next part of the passage. I'm, I'm kind of sick of this. I ask you to just lean in, take a pause and listen to it for the millionth and oneth time. I'm really not sure if it's oneth or first, so I've just said oneth, and I'm not sure how that sounded. But anyways, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He starts off with this idea that we all sin, and we are all unrighteous. 
Maybe you're thinking, oh great, here comes the guilt trip. I've been to church before, here comes him telling me how bad I am. And I don't think that Paul writes this, and I don't want this to come across as me trying to make you feel guilty. Because what Paul is trying to do here is to convict us to realize that we have a need for someone to step in to our life. If there was no verse 24, absolutely, I bet he would be trying to make us feel guilty because it's just, hey, you are a terrible person and you stink. But there's a verse 24, right? Because he gives us this hope that we can place our entire lives, our entire souls in. And so what Paul here is saying is that no matter how good of a person we are, we still need a Savior because we are still utterly unrighteous. And it's important for us to spend all this time in just two verses because when we forget the gravity of our sin, we lose our gratitude for his grace. When we forget the gravity of our sin, what it condemns us to, what it lowers us to, we lose our gratitude for his grace in our life. And Paul here uses a very specific word to describe God's grace in our life. This act of declaring you and I righteous by looking at his son. He uses the word gift. Raise your hand if you've ever received a gift in the room today. I am praying that that's everyone. If not, if you have not received a gift, please talk to me afterwards because I feel bad. And we'll see what we can do about getting you a gift. But I can't promise you it's going to be anything good. But I would like to tell you about a time that I got a gift. Now my parents are sitting here in the first row. So I hope they don't feel too much shame about me sharing this story. But when I was about 9, 10, we were talking about this last night. 9 or 10 years old, I was like really, really wanting a snake. Like super, super bad. I've been researching snakes. I've been super into snakes for a couple of years. Now, if you're thinking, what a weirdo. I was 9 or 10 years old, so sue me. Okay, just chill out. I really wanted a snake. I had been asking for one, I don't know, probably for a couple months to a year. I'm not exactly sure. And leading up, about a week leading up to my birthday, I was absolutely convinced that I was getting a snake. I mean, my sisters had told me, hey, Nathan, mom and dad might be actually getting you something that you want this year. And my mom and dad were even kind of like, hey, you know, what you're asking for, we might get it for you. Came time for the birthday party. I remember exactly where it was. Outside patio of Barbarito's restaurant in Johnson City, Tennessee. Dave and Shelby Ingram there with some other friends and family. I can remember like it was yesterday. Everyone's bringing in their presents, setting them down. And here comes my dad walking with this box. And when I tell you he was walking like way too overly cautious, like, right? Like he was like, if I even shutter this box, something's going to happen. He sets it down on the table. I realize that there are holes poked in the top of the box. I'm getting amped up. At this point, I'm like 100%, 110% sure, like I am getting a snake. Let's go. The entire dinner, right? My heart beats racing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm getting a snake. I'm getting a snake. Everyone's trying to talk to me. I can't focus on anything. I just am excited to open up this box with a snake in it. Comes time for the present. Side note, throughout the entire meal, every single one of my family members, whenever somebody puts a box on top of it, will go, no, 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 no. It needs air. It needs air. Or any single time it's left in the sun too long, they'll go, hey, it might get too hot. We should probably move it out of the sun. So you can, you know, I'm 110, I'm nine years old. I'm like, oh my gosh, God is good all the time. Amen. Let's go. So I open it up. I start opening it up. And I start to pause for a second because I'm like, okay, this thing has been in a box for however many hours. I would be kind of frustrated, potentially hungry. And if they see just something reaching his hand down in there, they don't know it's a hand. It's a snake. How smart is this thing? It might try to bite me. So I kind of pause and everyone's like, no, Nathan, you really want to open it. It's going to be really, really good. You're going to love this present. I'm like, okay, I got this. I start to open it back up, right? And there coiled up in the bottom underneath all that tissue paper is a fake rubber snake. Yeah, you guys are laughing now, just like everyone else was when I was 9 or 10 years old. 9 or 10, everyone's laughing. Dave and Shelby Ingram, friends and family, they're high-fiving, chest-bumping each other, like, what a prank. Boom, roasted. We got him. 
And there is a nine-year-old boy at Barbarito's outside Mexican cantina bawling his eyes out because he was convinced he was getting a snake. Now, my dad still, as we were talking last night, I think he almost had to walk out of the room as, I was t- as we were rehearsing this story of what actually happened because he still feels this shame about this. And honestly, it's a really good prank looking back on it because I would love to do this to my kids in the future. But you may be thinking, Nathan, what's the point of this story? Well, let me get to it. What, two years later, guess what I got for my birthday? A real snake. Yep, I got a real snake. Absolutely. Why? Because my parents, not my mom. My mom hates snakes. She didn't feel a single lick of bad. My dad felt like he owed me something for the trauma that they had caused me on my ninth birthday. Here's the difference between a human gift and a God-given gift. Human gifts sometimes are given because there's a debt that needs to be paid. You hurt someone's feelings, so you buy them flowers or their favorite uh, drink from Publix, or you go out and you get them dinner or anything like that. Sometimes, or, or let's say this, it's their birthday, so you are required sometimes to give them a gift just because the mom did everything, okay? So a human gift, there's almost this sense of, I owe them this thing. With this God-given gift, though, there was nothing that we did that earned this gift from God. He did not owe us anything. It was a pure act of grace that he gave this gift to you and me. Even if we feel like he owes us something, or even if we feel like he's caused us pain and he needs to, uh, let's see, even out that debt or something like that, it doesn't mean he owes us anything. Paul says that this is an absolute gift. John Piper says, grace is the good that you get when someone owes you nothing. God owed us nothing, and yet, Paul writes, in order to show his righteousness, he passes over our former sins. These aren't just two verses that we, two verses that we go, ah, heard it before, let's keep going on. These are two verses that should put us on our knees, thanking God for all that he has done, because without Jesus, we aren't justified. Without Jesus, we don't have salvation. Without Jesus, we don't have a relationship with God. Without Jesus, we have nothing. We need Jesus, and God doesn't hold it over our head. What he says is, come to me, and I will give all of me to you. Just believe in me, and you have everything that you will ever need. So what does this make us do? I don't think Paul here is writing these first six verses just to build our knowledge on God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. Here, he is giving us wisdom so that we can take it into a practical and applicable understanding in our life. What he is doing here and what he's leading us to to know is what he writes in verse 27 and verse 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith from works, apart from works of the law. When we truly encounter God's righteousness in our own life, it humbles our hearts. That's it. That has to be our response to the gospel. We cannot come to the gospel in a prideful or deserving way. We come to the gospel from this heart of humility. As I've been reading this passage over and over again, and as I've been meditating on these words and practicing this sermon and all these things, I have found myself at times just slumping back and just resting in this truth of humility. Because there's a thought that I've continually had that is really kind of just blowing my mind, to be honest. There's probably a better way to say that. 
But there's just this thought that's been constantly going in my head, and I want to share that thought with you today. The sin I have committed in my life that makes me unrighteous is no different than any other sin in God's eyes. The sin I've committed in my life that makes me unrighteous is no different than any other sin in God's righteous perspective. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. If you've kept the law your entire life and you mess up just once, that's it. You are completely and utterly unrighteous. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Paul here does not specify how much sin, what quantity of sin, what type of sin it takes to become unrighteous. He just says a singular sin will make you unrighteous because anything less than God's righteousness is utter unrighteousness. I know this is not necessarily the most feel-good sermon, so I, I would like to take us a step further because I don't know if I necessarily always understand the gravity of what this means when my sin is no different than any other sin in God's eyes. But before I say this, I want to preface these two, this, this statement that I'm about to make with two things. I have two really big fears when I'm preaching. I have a lot of fears when I'm preaching, but here are my two big ones. The first one is sneezing. It may seem irrational, but I'm, a, not, a, I'm not a pretty sneezer. You can ask my wife. I, I, my head cocks back and blows forward. There's snot everywhere. So I just feel like if I sneezed up here, there would be no coming back. You guys would never be able to look at me the same, and I probably would never be able to step foot on here because I just wouldn't know what to do. That's kind of irrational. But the second one is a little bit more serious. And that is, I, my biggest fear is not communicating what God wants me to communicate because I'm scared of what you all will think. Maybe that makes you nervous with what I'm about to say, but here it goes. My sin is no different than the sins of anyone else's. In God's righteous perspective, the sin in my life that makes me unrighteous is no different than that of a person who would go into a house, steal everything from a family, and ruin their livelihood. The sin in my life that makes me unrighteous is no different than the person who would cheat on their spouse with another person. The sin in my life is no different than the sin of the person who has sold hundreds of thousands of women into sexual slavery. The sin in my life that makes me unrighteous is no different than the sin of the person who ordered the death of 11 million people in Nazi Germany. Do we understand the gravity of what it means to have this sin in our life? Do we understand the gravity of this unrighteousness in our life? When we understand this and when we understand that just because society deems me as a good person... When we understand that God doesn't view me as more righteous or less sinful than anyone else just because I haven't done those things, when we understand those things, we have to understand it out of a sense of humility because our standard is not found in society. It's found in Jesus and his righteousness displayed on the cross. Our definition of good and bad does not come from what society tells us is good and bad. It comes from the Bible and what Jesus commands us to do. Sin is less about hurting people and more about disobeying God, plain and simple. And because all of those things, even if we just sinned once, anything short of God's righteousness is complete unrighteousness. If I fully realize my unrighteousness in light of the righteousness of God, I am humbled. Because God in his righteousness, his mercy and love stepped into my life and died for me even though I was undeserving and unworthy. 
So finally, what does this humility cause us to do? Once again, Paul's not just stopping here with verses 27 and 28. And we arrive kind of at our big idea of the message today. And that is experiencing the righteousness of God humbles our hearts and leads us to love God and love others. In verse 31, Paul ends with this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We see this new law of Jesus, not dissemble this old law, this Mosaic law. We see it uphold it. So what specifically, though, are we holding? Jesus states uh, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 38, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We see this law of faith uphold this law of love. And in a world where this is becoming more countercultural, where a world where this kind of love is becoming more countercultural, and in a world where love is kind of being defined as whatever it is to you, I would like to define love. But not myself, because that would be too dangerous. I would like to look to Scripture and define love. And I would like to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. But I want to do something a little different today because of how important this kind of love is. I'd like us to stand and read it together. So if you are able, could we stand together and can we read this out loud? I know I talk fast, so I will, walk, I will talk a little slower so we read through this. But let's start. One, two, three. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Thank you guys. You guys can have a seat. This love, I think, is too often think, thought of in just the confines of the context of uh, marriage between a man and a woman. But this is not just a love between a man and a wife. This is a love that we are called to have to every single person that we come in contact with our life. This is the love that Jesus is calling us to show others. This active and unconditional 1 Corinthians 13 Christ-filled love. It's a tough concept. I struggle with this because for me, being honest, there are some people that are just too hard to love. There are some people who are sometimes just a little too annoying to love at times. There are some people who are just too different to love. And there are some people who at times I feel like don't even deserve my love. And yet if I understand my unrighteousness and that in God's righteousness, he stepped into my life, he lived with me, loves on me, and not only just said he loved me, but showed his great love for me by dying on the cross, then I am called to do the exact same thing to every single person. Christ loved tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, government officials, murderers. He loved the disciples who devoted their lives to them, but he also loved the Roman soldiers who murdered him on a cross. He loved every single one of them. So don't get it twisted. If no one is excluded from Christ's love, our love cannot exclude anyone. If no one is excluded from Christ's love, then our love cannot exclude anyone. And I think that we can get around this idea of loving everyone 
by plain and simple, just avoiding people, right? I think I said it last week in my uh, college Bible study. I said, sometimes I just, my way of loving people is not going up to them because I would probably smack them if I went up to them. I don't know if anyone else has that thought. But in reality, even me saying that is wrong. Because God does not call us to a passive love where we sit back and only love those who come to us for love. Our love is not a contingent love where it's contingent on the way people act, think, vote, or even love you back for me to show my love to them. It is an active and unconditional love. So what does this mean for you and me? Who are we to love? Who is this neighbor that God calls me unconditionally? Because we have pretty good neighbors in this house that we just came to. So I can love those people pretty well, but does that mean I don't have to love anyone else? No, who God is calling us to unconditionally and actively love are Christians and non-Christians, whether they be Muslims or Hindus or atheists, whoever they are. He's calling us to love black and white and Latinx and Asian people, whoever they are, he's calling us to love. He's calling us to love unconditionally and actively both Republicans and Democrats, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump, he's calling us to unconditionally and actively love. We're called to love heterosexuals and homosexuals, police officers and the criminals, American troops and the troops on the other side. Why? Because we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. This is an offensive thing. This is an offensive gospel. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to shake us to our core. It's meant to root out the pride in our life and show us that we are to be humble before the throne of God. And we are to be humble in our relationships with every other person. If our love for someone is contingent on how they act, they think, they vote, or even love you back, it's not the love that Christ loved us with. And thank goodness it's not. I'm not saying that you have to affirm everything that everyone's doing all the time. Absolutely not. Pastor Mark has preached so many times that we are called to judge others. But if, if it's all truth and no grace, it's abusive. And if it's all grace and no truth, it lacks substance. We're called to actively and unconditionally love others. So you can vote for things. You can stand for things. That is our freedom as a Christian and our right as an American. Absolutely, we are allowed to do all that. We are called to do all of that. But all I'm saying is that if whatever you believe about anything going on from politics to pandemics makes you think less of a person because they believe something differently, it's not the love that Christ is calling us to love them with. It's not our job to conform someone to look like us. It's our job to help others conform to Christ. I am not the way, the truth, the life. As much as I think it sometimes, I am not the way, the truth, the life. Here's something hard. You are not the way, the truth, the life. No party is the way, the truth, the life. No person is the way, the truth, the life. Only one person and one man is the way, the truth, the life. So if we're putting our faith in anything else, if we're putting our hope in anything else, if we are putting our way of life in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, then we're not living our life for him. There's grace when we mess up, absolutely. It's a gift of grace. It's not contingent on how well we do this or how bad we do this, but it doesn't stop us from being called to actively and unconditionally love others. And if you're thinking right now, Nathan, I can tell you right now, this may be good, but there's no way I'm loving this person. I I can uh, love them, but I don't like them. I love this person, but I'm going to love them from afar because if I get up close, it's uh, gonna be interesting. 
Can I tell you, that's why Jesus says a first commandment before the second commandment. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. God calls us to love him first because if we are prioritizing him first, if we are looking to him, focusing our souls and hearts on him, we have this humility to love those who are hardest for us to love. No matter how angry they make us, no matter what they've done to us, no matter how inconvenient it is for our schedule, this law of faith Paul talks of upholds this law of love because it provides us with this humility from God's righteousness so that we can step out, live with, love on, and even die for our neighbor. I don't know who God is calling you to love right now. I don't know who God is challenging you to love. Maybe it's me up here. Maybe he's challenging you to love me because of the things I've just said. I'm not sure. But this is what I will share and then we will be done and pray. This is what I know God is calling us to do. I know he is calling us to unify communities under the commonality of Christ, not divide them over party or positional lines. We're called to step into the lives of others that are different than ours, not distance ourselves from them. And we are called to actively and unconditionally love every single person not conditionally or passively love others who look exactly like us, think exactly like us, or who love us back. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let those two verses soak into your soul. Let those two verses become a meditation of your life. Let those two verses become something that you wrap your heart and intentions around because that is the gospel. And when we are focusing on God, we gain this humble heart that allows us to love him more and love others with a deeper, more Christ-filled love. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we come to you today humble. God, we come to you today on our knees just asking and thanking you for your grace. In the midst of our great unrighteousness, you stepped in and showed your righteousness to the world by passing over all sins. And not just passing over all sins and leaving, but passing over all sins staying so God right now I pray for every single one of us here in the room and watching from church at home as I know this is a struggle for every single one of us to actively and unconditionally love others God I pray right now that we are putting you first in every single aspect of our life God and that we are loving you first God, I pray that you work in the lives of those here in this community to have humble hearts and to be examples of your love to those around us. In a world where everything is dividing us, God, I pray that the blood of Christ unites us more than anything else could ever divide us. God, I thank you for your gift of grace in our lives. 
I thank you for your son, Jesus, who didn't just die for us and leave, but also died for us and stays with us, working through us through your spirit. I pray these things in your name.